Well, hey, uh, good evening, Fathom Academy. Week 11, we're here. We are, uh, well, last two weeks of this class. And uh, tonight, we are finally moving out of the last three weeks, which we're talking specifically about salvation, the doctrine of soteriology. And tonight, we move to a doctrine called ecclesiology, uh, which is from the Greek word ekklesia, which means gathering or church. So we're talking about the church tonight, which is one of my favorite topics. I know it's one of Ryan's favorite topics, obviously, because we work in the church. We we believe in the local church. We love the church. Uh, but there's a lot of really important doctrine to, to understand why we do what we do, how we do what we do, and all of these things, they are informed in our theology. So uh, I'm excited to hear from Ryan tonight about the doctrine of ecclesiology. Uh, let's, let's pray together, and then we will get after it. Lord, thank you for the church. Uh, thank you that Jesus is the head of the church. Uh, thank you that you have called us not just away from something, but into something. And that's your body. Uh, that is that is the community, the covenant community of faith. Lord, I am grateful for the church. I know my friend Ryan is grateful for the church. As we learn from him tonight, Lord, would you uh, deepen our hearts and love for the thing that you died for, your bride your church. Lord, deepen our love uh, through uh, our study tonight. We pray in the name of Jesus and by the power of the Spirit. Amen. All right. Well, hello, friends. Uh, Welcome here to week 11. Man, we are almost at the end of this thing. I appreciate all your time and attention these past 10 weeks as we've gone through just a lot of material together. It's kind of stunning to think about how much we've covered in these 10 weeks. And it's even scarier to think that we've left tons out. Uh, but here we are in week 11, where we are getting to one of my favorite topics. One of my most, uh, yeah, one of the topics that's most important to me, as uh, some of you know, I work as a pastor, uh, alongside uh, my teaching. And so, um, the church is near and dear to my heart. I believe it is near and dear to God's heart too. And it's an important topic for us to cover. And it's important too, because evangelical Christians, uh, at least on a formal level, tend to have, uh, man, sort of underdeveloped theologies of the church, right? Maybe we're not quite uh, sure what the church is or what it does, what it's for. And so what we're going to do tonight is talk a little bit about the nature and the function of the church. Now, I mentioned we've been leaving a lot out, and there's uh, libraries and libraries full of books on Christian theology, of course. So, but some of the things that we're going to have to leave out in our discussion tonight, we're not going to be talking really about how the church is organized, whether it should have bishops or priests or whatever. Uh, we're not really going to talk about how the church um, practices the sacraments or the ordinances of baptism or the Lord's supper. That stuff is all really important. But as I had to pare the, the talk down uh, and uh, cut the schedule down to 12 weeks, we just couldn't fit it all in. So what we're going to do instead is talk about the nature and the function of the church. So all I'm trying to do here in our time together is sketch out some of the main ways that the New Testament writers talk about the Bible and depict it, uh, some of the images and the metaphors they use and, and what they can tell us about how we ought to be practicing as the church today. And then we're going to think theologically about the church a little bit, what, what the church ought to be doing, what are its prime functions. And what we're going to do in that part in part two is just talk about four of the main things that the church ought to be doing, which is uh, worshiping together, building fellowship and community, proclaiming the gospel, pursuing the work of justice uh, in the world, bring, uh, living uh, by the values of God's kingdom as inaugurated in the person of Jesus. 
And then uh, in part three, I'm just going to make a few concluding remarks about why the church is so important, why it really, really matters uh, that we take the church seriously, because the church matters a lot to God. Uh, The story of the Bible in many ways is God making a people for himself who then turn around and bless all of creation and all peoples in the church, according to the witness of the New Testament, is that people. And so the church matters a lot. Uh, I'm very happy to get to talk about it. I mentioned at the end of last week's talk, sometimes I get a little carried away and I get on uh, up on my soapbox when I talk about the church, um, but I'll try to rein it in and be civil. So uh, without further ado, let's jump into some of the ways that the Bible talks about the church. Now, as we've been doing with most of our doctrines, I just want to briefly acquaint you with some of the key biblical vocabulary uh, around the church, which will help us to understand uh what the biblical writers think uh, the, the, the community of God is supposed to be doing uh, and what its nature is. Now, in Hebrew, there's a couple terms. Kahal is the main one. The word kahal means an assembly or a convocation. It's used throughout Exodus and primarily in Deuteronomy when God's people are called together to a shared physical space, either to hear the word of God together or to participate in the worship and the the sacrifices of Israel. And uh, the big point I want you to see here is that it is always an assembly of people together in a physical place. A related term is idah. That one's used a little bit more infrequently. And it means a, a call to the assembly around the cultus or the law. Now cultus here uh, doesn't mean like a weird zany religious group. Cultus just means worship practice. So this word can be used to summon God's people to participate in worship practices. So on one level, when the Bible talks about the assembly of God's people, they're often being assembled to uh, worship uh, or to, pr- to participate in the sacrificial system, uh, which of course Christians don't have, um, but uh, we do come together for common worship. Uh, a couple words uh, in Greek that are important, kuriakos. This is where we get our English word church, kuriakos, and it literally means belonging to the Lord. Uh, I think I mentioned in a previous talk, perhaps that I went to graduate school in Scotland and in Scotland churches are still called kirks. That's the Scottish word for church kirk. And it comes from this Greek word kuriakos. And it means the ones who are belonging to the Lord. So the church on one level on its most basic level simply means an assembly of people who belong to God, who are the saints who have been set apart for God's presence and for God's purpose. Like we talked about last week. Uh, and then the other key term is ecclesia, ecclesia, where we get the word ecclesiology, right? The study of the church. And ecclesia means the assembly, but it also means the called community. It's related to the Greek word to call. And so ecclesia means the group that has been called out. So to belong to the church is to belong to a called community, a community that has been addressed by God. It has been summoned by God. And it has been set on mission by God, right? So the church is the community that lives on God's mission. According to God's summons, uh, they are a called community. One point here that I want to borrow from uh, the work of a German New Testament scholar named Carl Schmidt, who wrote this in the Theological Dictionary of the New Testament. He makes a point about the way that the, these terms are used in the New Testament uh, in particular. He says this, the sum of the individual congregations does not produce the total community of the church. Each community, however small, represents the total community, the church. This is a really important point, and I want to try to see if I can flesh out what Schmidt means here. Um, Typically, we can talk about the church in at least two senses. We can talk about the church 
with a capital C. That's the church in every time and uh, every place. It transcends time and geography. That's the church universal. But then we talk about individual churches with a lowercase c. Uh, and what Schmidt is saying here is every instantiation of a, an individual congregation is uh, in some sense a representation of, and in an even more profound sense, participates in the big capital C church. So in other words, when you go to worship at your local community, you are worshiping with the church universal, the big C church. Uh, your individual congregation does not exhaust uh, the church. It is not the only church, but it actually participates in, in the larger church. So every single congregation is an instantiation of the church universal. Now, this is really important. So when you uh, think about the church that you go to, if I wanted to be speaking kind of theologically properly, I should not say that I go to Foothills Fellowship Church. I should say I go to the church at Foothills Fellowship, or you might say I go to the church at Fathom or the church at Mission Hills or the church at Southern Gables or what have you, right? Uh, because every single congregation is a representative of the church universal. And this really is uh, important, folks, because we need to understand uh, that all these churches in our city, right, we're not rivals with them, right? We are on the same team. That is a worshiping community that we join when we worship together on Sunday mornings. So uh, as a way of reminding myself of this, I have this practice. Uh, I live in the suburbs of Denver, the western suburbs, and there are many, many churches there. And so uh, on my way to church on a Sunday morning, I drive past nine or 10 churches and I've made a practice of praying for each of those churches as I drive past them on the Sunday, that the, the spirit would come in power at those churches and that people would come to know Jesus Christ and that people would come to offer themselves as living sacrifices. Because I know that when I worship with my congregation at Foothills, I am joining together with all the saints to offer our praises to God. So Schmidt's point is a good one that the assembled community is represented in individual congregations, but it participates in the larger church. Um, really important for us to understand that. What I want to do now is I'm going to give you three basic images, metaphors that the Bible uses to talk about the people of God, the church. And I'm going to be looking primarily at the, the New Testament because that's where we get the church formed. That is God's people of Jews and Gentiles together in Jesus Christ, in the Messiah. And the New Testament uses a lot of different metaphors to talk about the church. But I want to talk about three main ones and what they might mean for us. Now, I want to pick up on a theme that Paul deals with all the way through 1 Corinthians. And I know that you folks at Fathom will be well acquainted with these images because you have been going through the book of 1 Corinthians. Uh, and I know Chris has been doing a good job with that. So this will not be new to you, I think. Uh, but one thing I want to pick up on is uh, this image of the temple of God that Paul is talking about. Now, when I first read these passages many, many times uh, years ago as a young Christian, I got the impression that Paul was talking to me as an individual, that I am a, a, my body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. And I had been trained by a youth pastor to think that that's what that meant. And so I would read a passage like 1 Corinthians 7, where he says, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. And I would think, oh, okay, I guess that means I should like exercise and eat well. Uh, and not get tattoos because you don't want to put graffiti on a temple. I actually had a, a youth counselor say that to me once. You wouldn't put graffiti on a temple, so why would you get a tattoo? Uh, that may or may not be, but that is certainly not what Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians 7, as I came to learn later. Uh, and part of the problem that we were running into here is a difficulty with the languages, right? Uh, there are some things 
that as good as our English translations of the Bible are, and they are magnificent, the work of wonderful and very, very good scholars, as good as they are, there are certain things that are just lost in translation. And this is one of them. See, the problem is in English, the, the first person, uh, sorry, the second person singular uh, and the second person plural are the same word, you, Y-O-U. So if I wanted to say, hey, you, individual, or hey, you, crowd of people, I'd use the same word. But in Greek, there are two different words. And so uh, in Greek, all of these commands are in the second person plural, but that doesn't come through in the English because it's the same word. So 1 Corinthians 3 says this, do you not know that you are God's temple? Here's the problem though. That's the second person plural in Greek. So uh, I am not a Texan, uh, nor am I from the South. I don't, uh, as a matter of course, use the word y'all, but it's actually, y'all is a very helpful word for reading the New Testament, actually, because uh, what the passage really says in Greek is this, do you y'all, do y'all not know, do y'all not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in y'all, right? And if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him for God's temple is holy. And you y'all are that temple. So what Paul is saying here is that you together, the assembled believers, you are the place where God's spirit dwells. Think about that for a second. Paul's using temple language here. The temple in Jerusalem was the place in Jewish thought where God dwelled in power. He literally dwelt there. Okay. If you wanted to go to the place where God was, you went to the temple. It was the intersection of heaven and earth as the New Testament scholar N.T. Wright puts it. And now Paul is saying, in fact, uh, because of the work of Jesus Christ and the outpouring of the spirit, now you all together are the place where the Holy Spirit dwells. And if you think about that for just a second, man, that might radically change the way you think about the church, don't you think? That when you gather with your brothers, brothers and sisters to worship, God's spirit is dwelling there. Just, as this, uh, just in just the same way that God's glory filled the Jerusalem temple. Which means, as the Baptist theologian Greg Allison has put it, the church is a pneuma dynamic community. What he means is the church gets its power and its purpose by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Because while it is true that the Holy Spirit indwells you and me as individual believers, the Spirit comes in a very particular kind of power in the church community in a way that the Spirit does not in individual believers. So something really does happen when we come together to worship uh, and the Spirit comes in power. It's a pneuma dynamic community, which means that the thing that the holds the, the church together is not our common interests. It's not whether we like each other and it's not whether we're in the same stage of life. It is the spirit of God. So if you can go to church with people you like, great. So much the better. If you can go to church with a lot of people in your season of life, also great. But Paul would say that's not what ultimately matters. What ultimately matters is that the spirit of God is dwelling in us, right? So Paul, for Paul, the church is the temple of the living God who dwells there by his spirit. Peter, in his first letter, picks up on uh, some themes that you see all throughout the Hebrew scriptures by calling the church God's royal priesthood, God's own priesthood. You may recall, uh, if you've read the, the Old Testament, that God chooses Israel for his own possession to be his chosen people, to be his priesthood, to be his holy nation. And with that in mind, listen to what Peter says in chapter two. 
He says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So Peter's talking to the people of God, the church, Jews and Gentiles together. And he says, just like God elected Israel to be a blessing for the entire creation, God is now by his spirit doing that through you, the church. So if you go all the way back to the call of Abram in Genesis 12, God says to Abram, I'm going to make you into a great nation. And through you, I'm going to bless all the peoples of the earth. And Peter is saying that promise has been realized in the church where uh, God has claimed a new priestly people for himself uh, of Jews and Gentiles together in the Messiah, in the power of God's spirit. So we are to fulfill a priestly function. Well, what does that mean exactly? Well, it means that our prime purpose is doxological, which means that the church exists to, to offer praise to God, just like the priests existed to take the praises of the people and offer them to God on the people's behalf. The church exists to take the praise of creation right, uh, and offer it to God. And we're off also to be priestly. We intercede for one another and we intercede for the world. So the church ought to be the community that takes the needs and the groans and the pain of the world and we take it and we offer it to God in intercessory prayer. So the church ought to be a praying community where we lift one another up and we lift the world up before God. Okay. So the church, uh, even though it is in some senses an inward looking community, tight community, it is always meant to be an outward looking community because we are supposed to represent the rest of creation to God as a holy priesthood. So for Paul, one of the images he uses is that we're a holy temple where the, where the spirit dwells. For Peter, we are God's own special possession. We are his priesthood. We're his chosen people, a, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Man, it's so beautiful. Another image that, uses, that Paul uses, and this is far and away the most famous of all the images of the church, is the body of Christ. Paul says this in a few different places, uh, most prominently 1 Corinthians 12 and 13, Romans 12. But I'm going to give you a passage from Ephesians chapter 1, where Paul says this, And he, that being God, put all things under his feet and gave to him, that's Christ, as head over all things to the church which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. This is a really interesting idea. We tend to think of the body of Christ as nothing more than a metaphor. And Paul can use it that way. This idea that we're like an organism that, you know, uh, we need uh, hands and we need feet and we need eyes and every body part has to do its part or the body can't function. And Paul does make that argument, but Paul is getting us to see that uh, it's not just a metaphor. The, the church really is the body of Christ. Uh, and I owe this to my friend, Andy. Andy is a good friend of mine. He is a patristic scholar, meaning he is a specialist in the church fathers. Uh, and as I was preparing some of this material, I had a good conversation with Andy. And he said, you know, uh, for the early Christians, when they talked about the church as the body of Christ, they didn't mean it as a metaphor. They meant it literally. And what he was saying is, that for Paul and the early Christians, if you want to be joined to Christ, you need to be in the church, in the body. That is where Christ makes himself real, which means that the church is an organism. And that entails an organic connection between the believers. So in a very real sense, you and I, as believers, we depend on one another for our life, right? 
we may not think about the church in these terms. The church may not be that important to us, but for the writers in the New Testament, that is the place where Jesus Christ is. Okay. And while we're here, I just want to make a a sort of a a related point. Uh, It is possible to encounter Jesus Christ in all kinds of ways. You can encounter Jesus Christ through your personal prayer and reading of scripture. Uh, You can encounter Jesus Christ through music or through art. I have been told, although I'm skeptical, that you can encounter Jesus Christ in creation. You know, I have lots of friends who are like, oh, I connect with God by going out in nature. And it's like, I go out in nature to get a rash and then come home. That's how it goes for me. But there is only one place where God has promised that he will meet us in Jesus Christ. And that is in the church. Okay. Where two or more are gathered in my name, there I am with them, Jesus says. So the body of Christ uh, is the church, and the church is the body of Christ. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, writing in the 20th century, said it like this, the church is Jesus Christ existing as community. It's a really provocative phrase, Jesus Christ existing as community. But Bonhoeffer's point is this, if you want Jesus Christ, you need the church. It is where he makes himself real, right? And so uh, if you may be wondering, man, I just don't experience God. Where is God? I don't feel him. Well, go to the church because that's Jesus Christ existing as community. This is what Paul is after when he talks about the church as the body of Christ. It is how Christ literally exists in the world, right? So as I mentioned, there are lots of different metaphors we could have looked at, Um, But I want you to keep these three in your mind, the temple of God, uh, God's own priesthood, and the body of Christ. And I want you to just meditate on them, right? Is that how we think about the church? The place where the Holy Spirit really dwells or a priestly people interceding on behalf of the world or the body of Christ, the organic connections where Jesus Christ makes himself real in the world. I wonder if we let those metaphors really permeate our imagination, if our thinking about the church would change. And so to that end, I want to talk a little bit in this next section about the functions of the church. What should the church be doing? What does it exist to do? What is it for? What does it do as the body of Christ? What does it do as the temple of the Holy Spirit? What does it do as a holy priestly nation? Well, the church has a lot of different functions, I think. But uh, for our purposes here, I wanted to distill them to four, right? Um, whatever else we could say about the church and what it does, I think we can at least say the church is, exists for these four reasons. For worship, uh, for fellowship, or here you could use edification, for the proclamation of the gospel, and for justice. Now, as I thought about how to connect these four functions, how to organize them, uh, I did it through this really awesome diagram that I made on, uh, on Microsoft word. Uh, I'm pretty handy with computers, as you can tell, but through this sweet, uh, diagram that's on your uh, handout here. Um, it's a stupid little diagram, but all I'm trying to do is express that. I think that the logic of the church's functions, what I mean is the relationship between the church's functions moves from the inside out like a series of concentric circles. So uh, in my conviction, anyway, the core of the church's identity is to be a worshiping community. That is the most fundamental thing that the church does is to worship God. It sounds simple, but it's not. The church 
is the worshiping community. And then moving out uh, along these concentric circles is fellowship, the next layer out where we uh, worship God together. And as we do that, we are formed to the likeness of Christ in relationship with one another. And we build profound relationships uh, according to what the New, New Testament calls koinonia. We'll talk about that in a minute. And then uh, the church moves uh, ever outward looking, right? The church is an outward looking community. So even though we worship and we focus on the edification of the saints, we are an outward looking community. And this means that we are tasked with proclaiming the gospel. The church is a confessing community. We confess the Lordship of Jesus Christ to the world. And then that is followed uh, by uh, the work of justice for lack of a better term. Uh, but what all I mean here is the church is a community that seeks to live in accord accordance with the values of the kingdom of God and seeks to do the will of God on earth as it is done in heaven. Now, I do not think that the church can solve every social problem. And I don't think it's the church's primary, primary business to solve every problem. But as I will argue in that section, uh, the work of justice is how the church makes its, its worship credible in the world. So I do think it's vitally important and we'll talk about that. So um, I'm not exactly trying to argue for an order of importance here. That's not really what I'm doing. Uh, like worship is more important than proclaiming the gospel or whatever. I don't, I think those are actually false dichotomies and we don't need to get into that because I think that any four of these ingredients, you should, you subtract one of them and the church really ceases to be the church. The church's mission is to worship to build fellowship, to proclaim the gospel, to do the work of justice, and to be the church. The church has to be doing all of those things. So what I want to do is just with the rest of our time together, just very briefly, sort of talk about all of these four functions uh, and kind of see if we can sketch out a vision of the mission of the church in the world. And I think the primary function of the church is to worship. And I want to share with you here a text that really has shaped my thinking about the church in recent years. It's from Zephaniah chapter three. Zephaniah is one of those minor prophets uh, stuffed at the back of your Bible. They all seem to run together. You know, Zechariah, Zephaniah, Malachi, Haggai, right? I don't even know if all of those are real, right? They're all just sort of jammed back there. We don't spend a lot of time in the back in that section of the Bible, but it's a really important section. Um, for a lot of reasons. One, because it kind of lays out the vision for what it will be like when God comes to dwell with his people. Uh, and so Zephaniah three offers a really beautiful picture of um, God's relationship to his people. And he's not speaking specifically about the church here. And I recognize that he's speaking about the people of Israel. Um, but I think we could extrapolate it and talk about uh, kind of God's relationship to his people and uh, why the church's worship matters so much. Listen to this in Zephaniah 3. The Lord your God is in your midst. A mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. And he will exalt over you with singing, loud singing. I could be mistaken here, although I think that's right. This is the only place in the, in the scriptures where God is depicted as rejoicing and singing over his people. It's a really beautiful image of when God's people come together and worship, God shows up and he sings too. And he rejoices over his people 
with gladness. But the line that really struck out, stuck out to me was this first one. The Lord, your God is in your midst. Okay. And I'm just going to share from my own personal experience. And I wonder if you can relate to it. My wife and I had to have a sort of come to Jesus moment a couple of years back around our worship practices around Sunday, because um, it became clear to me <clears throat> as I reflected on it. And as I read this passage from Zephaniah, that really struck me like a ton of, a ton of bricks that we were not preparing to meet with the living God when we went to church on Sunday. And in fact, we were not showing up to church with the expectation that we would meet the living God there. We would sleep as late as we possibly could. We were both working full time at the time. So we would sleep as late as we could. And then we would wake up late and we would uh, have to, to sort of uh, hurry and rush around to get ready to go to church. So we were harried and we were in, not in a good mind state. And then we had woken up late. So we were groggy. So we were tired. And on our way to church, we would stop to get coffee. And then we would uh, roll into church. Oftentimes, as often as not, we would be late halfway through the first worship set. Uh, sort of rushing in, not at all prepared to meet the living God who is in our midst. And then, of course, we had a baby and that just, woof, man, I don't know how people are on time uh, to anything once they have a baby. And it became clear that we were not preparing to meet the living God because our ecclesiology was weak. We did not really consider that when we came to worship with our brothers and sisters, we were really encountering the living God and that we needed to prepare ourselves like it, that we needed to take time in the morning to reflect, to confess our sins, to prepare our hearts for worship, not to show up at the last possible moment. And let me just ask you this. When you go to church on a Sunday morning, do you go with the expectation that the God of the universe is in your midst? And how would it change if you did, right? Because that's what the scriptures are telling us. When we come together to worship, God himself is there. So the church's worship matters because the fundamental purpose of a human being is doxological, right? This is uh, a, by a, book, uh, a book by a theologian that I highly recommend. It's by John Jefferson Davis. He teaches at Gordon-Conwell Seminary out in Massachusetts, and he wrote a book called Worship and the Reality of God. And in that book, uh, it's sort of damning for Denver, actually. He was on a, maybe a, a six-month sabbatical research leave, and he spent, he spent it in Colorado. And he spent part of it going around to churches. He said he went to about 100 churches in the Denver area just to observe the worship service in preparation to write this book. And he said that overwhelmingly he got the sense, at sitting in these churches, uh, that people were not showing up with the expectation that they were going to meet the living God. Now, I don't know. That may be fair. That may not be. I know that if he had been watching me, he could have drawn that conclusion pretty fairly. And he says, man, uh, what we really need to recover is a sense that we are here to worship because we are worshiping beings. This is what he means when he says a human being is a doxological creature. It is in our nature to worship. We cannot help it. And if we don't worship the true God, we will worship some sort of false God. And that's really dangerous because what we worship shapes us into its own image. So you worship a malformed God, you're going to be malformed. And so the, the, the work of the church is to make sure that we are oriented toward God, worshiping God, 
and being conformed to his image, which means that the fundamental activity of the church must be oriented toward the word of God. So we do this not only in our worship, in our singing, we do this in the way that we practice the sacraments. We do this in the way that we read scripture publicly together as a community. And we do it in the way that we receive the word of God proclaimed to us. So one of the things the church must do is have the word of God proclaimed. Uh, the great 20th century theologian Karl Barth said that the church must always be on guard, that it is doing theology, not anthropology. And what he meant is we need to make sure that we are talking about God and not talking primarily about ourselves. Church is not a place where we go for self-help. It's not a place where we go for life hacks. It is not a place to go to, uh, for therapy to feel better. Although if the if worship does make us feel better so much, the better. For, uh, but the purpose is to focus on God to come and offer ourselves as living sacrifices before the glory and the goodness and the majesty of God, right? So church fundamentally is about God. It is about us secondarily. So the church is the worshiping community. The church secondarily is the fellowshipping community. Uh, One of the prime uh, purposes of the church is to build community. It is to build us. Uh, join us together with one another as we are joined to Christ. Listen to how Paul puts it in Ephesians chapter four. These are his instructions to the church in Ephesus. He says, rather speaking the truth in love. I want you to notice the language he uses here of growing up. We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So for Paul, the destiny and the purpose of a worshiping community is to build one another up in love into conformity to the image of Christ. So that uh, on the, on the day of judgment, we may offer ourselves fully formed in love, building ourselves up in love. And the term that the New Testament uses primarily for this is a Greek word koinonia. You might recognize the word koinonia because there's like a million Christian coffee shops that are called koinonia. Uh, And it means fellowship or community, but it means something more than that. It doesn't just mean like a bunch of people who like to hang out. That is not at all what the church is in the New Testament's vision. Uh, The church is not organized around common interests. Uh, It is not even organized around uh, whether you like one another or not. What holds the church together is the Holy Spirit building up the church in koinonia. And koinonia has a few different dimensions. It means on one level, serious, intimate, radical commitment to one another. To belong to the body of Christ is to give yourself to another person, to a community to bear them and to be born by them. Uh, As Paul says, for instance, in Romans 12, he says, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. So this means that you must be in a community where you are known and you know others, where you know and you are fully known. Uh, It requires a certain amount of vulnerability with one another. It's a radical commitment. It's an intimate word, koinonia, right? It involves discipline, correction, and rebuke. The church is the kind of community where we ought to be able to correct one another in love. Listen to what Paul says in Ephesians 4. He says, speak the truth to one another in love. 
So the church ought to be the sort of community where you are building relationships, where you can have hard conversations with one another and it won't break the relationship. The church is a place where durable relationships are forged uh, in the power of God's spirit. And so koinonia involves being able to rebuke one another when it comes to it, right? This is uh, central to Paul's vision for the, the church, for instance. So um, those of you who go to Fathom, you know, I'm good friends with your pastor, Chris. We were roommates together in college and we get together often and we talk about life and ministry and family life and discipleship life. And we have the kind of relationship where we could tell one another hard things without us getting angry, without uh, us giving up on the friendship, uh, because that's koinonia. It's a sort of durable commitment to being conformed to the image of Christ with one another. Right. And it involves sustenance, right? We often talk about the church as the place where we are fed. You probably hear that language. I go to a church because I'm fed there. And that's part of it, right? Koinonia also means sustenance. And so Hebrews 5, for instance, uses the image of the church as the place where we learn to eat solid food. We start out on baby food or on formula. And as we grow in in, uh, koinonia and in relationship to one another, uh, and as we grow deeper in the faith, we learn to be able to eat solid food. So the church ought to be the place where we are getting really uh, substantial doctrinal instruction, where we are really exploring the scriptures together, being formed by the scriptures, being formed by the spirit of God uh, and becoming fully mature in Christ. So the church is a worshiping community. The church is a community of intense, intimate fellowship. And the church is a proclaiming community. Uh, it is literally among some of the last things that Jesus Christ said to his people on earth. Uh, and it's right there in the Great Commission, Matthew chapter 28. Listen to what he says to his followers. All authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. So he says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I'm with you even to the end of the age. This is a tricky one. There's lots of things about church that we like. Uh, I, I imagine evangelism is not high on the list, right? And I understand that. I am not uh, by nature a gifted evangelist. Uh, I'm not good at talking to people about God, which is uh, sort of ironic and sad because that's how I make my living. Uh, but maybe you've had the experience of trying to share your faith with someone and it just comes out as a mess, right? Totally incoherent. Have you ever had that experience where you're trying to share your faith and as it's coming out of your mouth, you're like, oh man, this is bonkers. Who could, who could possibly believe this? But what I love about the great commission is that it suggests that the church has been commanded to proclaim the gospel. It has been authorized, right? The, the, the disciples and by extension, all followers of Jesus have been deputized by Jesus to share the gospel and they've been empowered to proclaim the gospel because what does Jesus say right at the end? I am with you. Whether someone accepts the gospel or not, that doesn't depend on you. Your job is to bear witness. The church's word is to bear witness. The Greek word for witness is martus. It's where we get the word martyr. And it's someone who has seen something and bears witness to what they've seen. So maybe you're not an expert in theology. Maybe you don't feel confident enough in your own faith to be sharing it with others. Maybe there's lots of questions you don't have answers to. At the end of the day, to bear witness is simply to, 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 to point to the work of Jesus. Right? So the church is the confessing community that points to the work of Jesus. 
And so also implied in the great commission here is that evangelism necessarily entails discipleship. He says, don't just go tell people about Jesus, but teach them to observe all that I have commanded. Uh, The church's mission is not just to proclaim the gospel, but it is to conform people to the likeness of Christ. This is what we mean by discipleship uh, to grow up um, and to realize your destiny as someone uh, who truly bears the image of God. And this is done in the church by the power of the Holy spirit. So the church is a proclaiming, a confessing community. And the fourth function that I want to talk about as we uh, near the end here is that of justice, right? This is a sensitive topic sometimes, right? Uh, There are folks uh, who will argue uh, that the church's business should not be to try to solve every social problem. And I agree. That is not the primary purpose of the church. The primary purpose of the church is to be the worshiping and proclaiming community. But the New Testament also is unequivocal that God's people have a responsibility to their neighbors, not just in the household of faith, but to their unbelieving neighbors and friends. And we have a responsibility to God's good creation. It's right here in James chapter one. And then for later on in chapter two, James, uh, the brother of Jesus here is writing to the Christian community in Jerusalem. And he is just explaining what kind of faith God expects from his people. And listen to what he says. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and they're lacking in their daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and be filled, without giving them the things they need for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it doesn't have works, is dead. So what is James saying here? He says, yes, good. Let's get our doctrine right. Let's get our worship right. Let's grow in community and in fellowship. And let's proclaim the gospel. But also, if there are orphans and widows who are in distress, it is the church's responsibility to attend to their needs. And it is the church's responsibility to meet the material needs of their neighbors. If someone comes to you and says, hey, I'm really hungry. And you say, Go, uh, you give them a gospel tract and you say, good, feed on the good news of the gospel. James would say, doesn't cut it, right? God's people are expected to live in ways that are consistent with the values of God's kingdom, which has been inaugurated in the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so the Christian community is the community that lives in such a way uh, that uh, anticipates the kingdom being uh, coming on earth as it is in heaven. And so uh, James is making the point here that uh, if you claim to be in the faith, but you don't do any of these things, it calls into question the credibility of it. And this is a theme that James is picking up from the Hebrew prophets, especially in Amos chapter five. That's a very haunting chapter. Uh, It's very harrowing reading, but I, I, I encourage you to go read it because what's going on in Amos is the prophet is confronting the people of God in God's name. And the people of God think that they're doing fine. And God says to them, you've broken my covenant. And they say, oh, no, we haven't. Look, you know, we're, we're doing all the right uh, sacrifices. We're putting on all the right festivals. We're singing all the right songs. We're worshiping you just like you commanded us to in the Torah. What's the problem? And God says something really scary in Amos 5 to the people of Israel. 
He says, I detest your solemn assemblies. He says, I hate them. And he says, oh, all the songs you're playing. He says, they're like clanging cymbals. I don't, it's like noise. I don't want to hear them. And the implication is, he says to God, to God's people, the prophet Amos, he says, if you want to be the worshiping community of God, then you've got to care for one another. You've got to pursue justice. You have to show mercy. You have to enact just laws. He says, if you're not interested in doing any of that, I don't want to hear your worship. And the implication here is that dysfunctional worship will always manifest in dysfunctional social practices. Meaning that if our relationship with God is not right, then our relationship with our neighbors won't be right. And dysfunctional social practices delegitimize active, uh, accurate worship rather. And so that's what's really scary about this passage because all of our doctrine can be perfectly lined up. We can be perfectly orthodox. Our preaching can be really biblical. Our worship songs can be passionate and, and uh, thoroughly correct in their, in their theology. And yet if we are ignoring the requirements of justice, God may not be interested in what we have to say at our worship services. Right? Just chilling thought. So we might sum it up like this. The church's concern for justice is what makes Christian worship true. This is what he says in James chapter one, true religion before God is like this. And it's what makes Christian witness credible. In other words, if we talk a big game about the love and compassion of God, but we are not loving and compassionate as communities, how on earth would we expect the world to believe that? It makes our worship incredible. So. As I said, there are lots of functions that the church does, many more that we could have talked about, but for the purposes of time, we've chosen just these four. Worship, fellowship, proclamation of the gospel, justice. These are the things, among others, that make the church the church. The temple of the Holy Spirit, God's own priesthood, the body of Christ. So let's draw it all together. Let's make a few concluding remarks here about the church. And I'm going to try to stay off my soapbox. This is where I get fired up. I will try to be restrained and civil, but I want to make a few really important points. And I pray that you will hear these points, not in a spirit of judgment or in shame, but rather uh, that God by his spirit may open us up to love the church the way that God loves the church. A couple of things here. Number one, there's a Greek Orthodox proverb that I love. There is no such thing as one Christian. That's interesting. We live in a hyper-individualized society, and we like to emphasize that we can have a personal relationship with God. And it is true that we can. Uh, Do not misunderstand me. Absolutely, you can have a personal relationship with God. And I even believe that you can be saved apart from the church because of the work of Jesus Christ, and you confess your personal faith in him. But... uh, I will say this, Christianity is a team sport. If you try to do it by yourself, it's not going to go well. You need the community of faith. That's where God is. That's where you grow in grace and holiness. And I will say this, that the New Testament scriptures, they think in the plural. Almost all of the commands in the New Testament letters are in the plural. Which means that the New Testament writers simply take it for granted that you are in a worshiping community. So the Christian life is a life, if I can put it this way, that is lived in the plural. I can't emphasize it enough. If you are want to be serious about your Christian faith, you have to find a worshiping community. And you have to be involved there beyond being a spectator. Right? Uh, 
that's our challenge, right? To join ourselves to the people uh, of God. But here's the problem. Uh, the church can be really terrible. And I absolutely grant that. Uh, I had a, a seminary professor who liked to say the church would be great if not for all the people in it. And man, isn't that the truth? I've been in the church my whole life, right? And the church is full of people like me, broken, selfish, heady, sometimes cruel, right? You hang around the church long enough, I promise the church will hurt you. If you haven't been burned by the church, I think you, uh, you, you probably will at some point in your life. But here's the flip side. You will hurt the church. God has always been in the business of achieving his purposes through broken, fallen human beings. And the church is no different. The church is full of recovering sinners. Augustine very famously said that the church is like an infirmary. And it's full of broken, wounded people who are getting better together. So uh, the church is going to hurt you. You'll hurt, you'll hurt the church. And another thing that we need to keep in mind, a related point, is that there is no perfect church. Right? If you're out there on the prowl looking for churches and you just you haven't quite found the, the right fit, I'm not, uh, I don't mean to demean that at all. I think you should take the time to find a church that uh, where you can use your gifts and where you can commit to the community. But I have met people who are continually looking for the perfect church, and I will save you some time. There isn't one. And not only that, there never was. Right. Every once in a while, you'll hear someone get really nostalgic for the early Christian era. You know, you hear someone say like, oh, man, wouldn't it just be so great if we could just be like the early church, you know, like just do things the way that early Christians did, man, before like the church became an institution and got so messed up. Uh, And I always think when I hear people say that, I understand the impulse. There's something romantic about the early church. Uh, But then I also think to myself, that person has not read their New Testament very carefully. Right, because uh, if you read the New Testament letters, you will get the uh, the picture uh, in no uncertain terms that the early churches were really screwed up places. Uh, your church at Fathom has been going through First Corinthians, I know, uh, and you could sum up the entire message of First Corinthians in one phrase, which is "Stop it!" Right? Paul is saying to everyone, "Stop it! Stop it! Stop it!" I heard there's factions. I heard that you're dividing over. Uh, some are some are swearing allegiance to Apollos and to Paul and. To uh, and to others. And he says, stop it. And I heard that there's this guy who's sleeping with his mother-in-law. Stop it. Don't do that. And I hear that when you come together for the Lord's supper, the rich people are eating all the food and the poor people are going hungry. Stop it. Right. The church in Corinth is a mess because it is full of people, right? There isn't a perfect church. There never was. And Paul uh, says, listen, I know, I know the church is broken, but that is God's people. That is the bride of Christ. So when we are tempted to be cynical about the church, let's resist that temptation because that is the bride of Christ. Hebrews 10 passage, maybe that'll be familiar to some of you written in the first century uh, to an early Christian community. And the author says this, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and to good work. So part of the church's purpose is to spur one another on to be, to grow ever more into the faith, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. Okay. One point I want to make here. I won't belabor the point and I do not say it at all in a spirit of judgment, 
But I will say this, it is always easier not to go to church than to go. Uh, We don't often think about going to church and participating in a community as a spiritual discipline, but we should because uh, it takes work. We have to commit ourselves to community and we have to make ourselves get up on a Sunday morning. And there's always things that are going to be more fun to do than to go to church. It's way more fun to go to brunch or to go skiing or to watch the Broncos right? When they're on at 11, although that hasn't been as fun in recent years, you know what I mean, right? Uh, and I'm not trying to be legalistic about this. I'm not going to try to come down on anyone. Uh, sure. Of course you can go skiing from time to time on a Sunday, but man, the author of the Hebrews is right. He says, man, if you want to grow, you need to be in the habit of being together. Don't give up on it. The church is a hard place. It's a messy place. It requires a lot of us. Uh, it requires a lot of discipline. But that is where Jesus Christ is. And so I'll close by making this point from uh, Augustine, uh, who we've mentioned a lot in these 10 or so weeks. Uh, His magnificent book, Confessions, if you haven't read it, I highly recommend it. Um, And and, uh, remember, Augustine is a bishop, uh, well, yeah, a bishop in North Africa in Roman Carthage, what is now Tunisia, Tunisia and Algeria during the time that Augustine was writing, that was a Roman colony. And he's talking, uh, telling a story about two of his friends who are sort of kind of middle level magistrates in North Africa, a guy named Victorinus and a guy named Simplicianus. And these are two pretty important civil servants. They're well-known people in the communities. And the implication is that they would have a lot to lose if they converted from Roman paganism to Christianity. But as Augustine tells us, Uh, They have both converted to Christianity and they're having a conversation about it. And Augustine recounts their conversation in in his book. Uh, And this is how the conversation goes. Victorinus says to Simplicianus, he says, did you know that I'm already a Christian? So he's saying to his friend, Hey, did you hear I've converted to Christianity Right, I'm a Christian now? And his friend Simplicianus says this, you know, I'm not going to believe that. And I'm not going to count you among the Christians unless I see you in the church of Christ. So Victorinus says, Hey, I'm a Christian now. Do you know that? And Simplicianus goes, Oh really? Then how come I never see you in church? Right? I've never seen you there. And Victorinus laughed and he says, Hey, well, okay. Then do walls make Christians? In other words, he's saying, okay, are you really saying that I can't be a Christian unless I go within these four walls on a Sunday? Right. Do walls make Christians? And what's interesting is Simplicianus doesn't say anything. He doesn't answer. They walk on for a few more minutes. And then Victorinus suddenly and unexpectedly, Augustine says, says to Simplicianus, all right, let's go to the church. I want to be a Christian. And what Augustine is telling us in this story is that while it may be possible technically to be a Christian without the church, uh, Walls do make Christians, right? Now, I mentioned at the very beginning of our talk that the way that the New Testament talks about the, the church is with the word ecclesia, which means assembled community. And while it is true, and hear me on this, it's absolutely right that, ch- that the church primarily is not a building. It is a people, okay? It is a people. That is why we can still be the church in the age of COVID-19, even though we can't meet physically in the way that we used to at least for the time being, we can still be the church because it's a people, not a place. But guess where the church meets? In a building. 
within the walls. So Augustine is kind of making the point. You want to be serious about your faith? You've got to be inside those four walls. You've got to be where Jesus Christ is. And that is in his people gathered together. And as I say, I don't mean this in any sort of judgment, but I think I do want us to hear that there is a life abundant that is available to us when we join the worship community that is not available anywhere else, that God will make himself real to us in a way that he won't make himself real anywhere else. The church is his people, his bride. He loves them and we should love them too. So, all right. Soapbox speech over. Uh, I'll step down now. Uh, And we are coming to the end. Next week is our last time together. We're going to be looking at the doctrine of eschatology, the study of the last things, uh, which fittingly comes at the end. Uh, There's all kinds of zany stuff going on in eschatology. We're going to do our best to unravel it together. Uh, And I will look forward to seeing you then as we pick up with the end of the story where, uh, where God creates a new heavens and a new earth. So, Uh, With that in mind, I'll look forward to seeing you next week. All right. Thanks, everyone.